Welcome back. Today we are talking about the key findings from the Global Digital Overview 2020, a new report from Hootsuite, which is as lofty sounding as that name itself. It's a pretty exhaustive report with over 200 pages of stats around internet and digital patterns from pretty much every country in the world. Uh, David and I are going to be highlighting some findings that we think can help us as marketers from that report. And then a little later in the show, David is going to explain what second party data is and how the system system around this new emerging source of data is evolving, especially in the light of first and third party data um, uh, landscape itself. And finally, we do a quick roundup of industry step ups in light of the restrictions placed due to coronavirus. Uh, these are possibly things that can make your life a little easier in the time of remote work, whether you're an entrepreneur or a manager. Welcome to the Talking Stack Season 3, where your panelists David Robb, Anand Talker, Chitraya, and the occasional special guest catch you up on the most impactful MarTech concepts, trends, and perspectives. So David, let's start with what you found stand out in the Global Digital Overview Report 2020. It was a very interesting report, and as you say, 247 pages, so a lot of data in there if you've ever wondered what the population of by continent was you know here's the place to go and and uh some some very subtle things about uh, you know what's connected and how connected they are as an american of course usa should be number one in everything but it turns out we're not in fact we under index on even on social media time we spend less time than than a number of other countries so there's a lot of kind of broadening perspectives in, in how, where we sit. But I think there was some very interesting information there about speech technology and smart technology uses of those kinds of things, which we're just beginning to get our heads around as marketers. We know that smart tech is kind of there, and this is voice assistance and in-home you know, security devices, and it's a very controversial topic. There's been a lot of discussion, but it's still not really clear how we as marketers take advantage of that, or even as consumers, how interested consumers are, because they're really very, both intrigued by it, but also very aware of the privacy implications. So just to see, again, who's using what and who's not using what and what the adoption rates are, provides quite a bit of very, very interesting in, in information, well worth thinking about if you're, as presumably listeners are here, thinking about how you make use of this in, in your marketing world. A couple of other interesting aspects that I thought leapt out. One was uh, the insights on what, uh, for brands, on what customer engagement is going to look like in 2020. Uh, again, even within that, what I found most insightful and quite actionable actually for marketers in the near term is leveraging employees more optimally in that whole CX and customer engagement piece. I think a lot of brands in the B2B and B2C space are possibly missing the opportunity just because it's quite a double-edged sword, right? Letting people represent the brand and people who work for you at any level, not just the CXO and the PR team, but anybody who works for the company, letting them be a voice or an ambassador or a speaker. Of course, not all of it will be positive. So that's something to think about. But uh, the report said that people, consumers find employees' opinions on their employers or the company or the brands that they sell quite um, credible and believable. 
Then there's also that item about video being the number one activity online for over 90% of respondents. I mean, both professionally and personally, I presume behavior is pretty similar. So video is popular. We get that. Again, a useful one for marketers to really think about because I feel like marketers still haven't really found their purpose. And I'm saying that in quote unquote. I mean, marketers across the board don't seem to know what on earth to do with video or to expect with video. We're still not sure if we want to use them to engage our consumers, inform them, uh, drive social media uh, lead-ins or traffic uh, or, you know, use them as explainers. Um, and and I, also, I think we're not completely sure what the most meaningful metrics around video should be, which makes ROI really hard to measure. Um, then there's also confusion on what the best formats could be, what the most cost-effective way to get a grip on video can be, etc. Because right now it's super expensive, or that's what we think. In spite of the democratization of making videos, because on the MarTech landscape, we see so many tools that claim to empower marketers of all shapes and sizes to make videos literally in minutes. Yeah, video is an amazing topic, actually. We've seen some other studies about small businesses creating video, and, and the ones that were doing it were doing like one a week, and they say, oh my God, how can you do one video a week? Uh, but then they're like 30 seconds or six seconds or 10 seconds, really short little videos. But, but, but the people who are doing it do it frequently, and, and because there are these tools that you were just talking about that really make it very, very simple, because video you know, traditionally was obviously very hard to produce and very expensive and time consuming and you know we've seen people we've done some research for some of our own work here at the institute they're like you know five hundred dollars for 30 seconds of production time like whoa we're not going to pay that but apparently you can get do-it-yourself tools that basically let you do it for free and and they're, and they're some of them are pretty good yeah so the tools are all there but i think marketers like we spoke before have uh to you know, drive better ROI from video by first, I think, understanding their purpose and then uh, thinking about the tools that they want to use to actually create those videos versus um, the other way around. And then um, also, I think um, there was an item about voice. There are so many different ways to use voice today, right? For, you know, for CRM, for aiding customer service agents, voice search, voice commerce, all sorts of stuff. Um, surprisingly, we've also seen in the last year that voice, which we thought would be big on the consumer-facing end, is actually turning out to be a much bigger opportunity on the back end with internal stakeholders, making our work more efficient and effective. So that's interesting for us to track on the B2B front, at least. Well, voice... There, there have been interesting studies about use of voice search and use of voice commerce and all different subcategories of voice. And the people still seem to be, as you say, searching a bit to understand what the proper application is of it or how they're going to use it. There's a, sort of not, a, not as much enthusiasm for voice commerce as we might have expected. And indeed, just looking at, again, how the U.S. rates, the U.S. has not been a uh, is slightly below average in, in its adoption of voice search and voice commerce. Finally, David, let's talk about the evolution of social media as a strategic tool, because uh, the report obviously shows, uh, you know, a lot of data on how people, uh, how much time people spend on social media and for what reasons. Uh, now, social media started with the most companies putting an intern to man the wall, as it were, and then slowly it's emerged uh, over the years as a strategic tool for listening to customer voices, for providing services, and also build, building brand personality, and of course, 
also for generating revenue. Remember, we had that San- that show with Santiago Solimai from Melia Hotels, uh, who came and shared how they generated upwards of 400 million euro in revenues from social media initiatives. But again, I sense that marketers are still not clear about their purpose with social media and how to measure ROI for it. There's this, there's a whole lot of things you can do with social, from brand building, lead gen, having conversations, getting feedback, social commerce, of course, all sorts of things, right? Right. Well, just knowing how much time is spent on social, which is a huge portion of total internet time, you know, that's where your market is, right? So it, it's an opportunity to reach people. There's been a lot of interesting technology we've been sort of beginning to keep a little track on of social commerce technology. So, you know, clickable posts. And, and so that that's for direct commerce. Not everyone does direct commerce, of course. But there, there, there has been an explosion of that because traditionally social wasn't thought of as a direct selling channel. It was more just obviously about PR, but now actually there's a lot of selling goes on, things like Pinterest and so on. So that's actually a change. A lot of a lot of countries that even weren't traditionally direct sellers like packaged goods now are beginning to think about, well, you know, direct to consumer. It's got, it's got a three-letter acronym, so it must be important. So let, let's, let's think about how we can use social to do direct to consumer uh, sales and, and you know, with, with some legitimacy to it. So yeah, social, the social media thing, you know, it's going to be big. Mark my words. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that revelation, David. And, and you should, you should know about the importance of three letter acronyms, right? Mr. CDP. Uh, but speaking of CDP, <laughs> we have to have a customary conversation about data. And today we are talking about second party data. The space keeps growing and evolving, of course, the whole customer data management space. And recently we've had a piece of news about LiveRamp launching something called Safe Haven for second party data. So David, can you please tell our listeners a, about the news, of course, and why it matters, but also tell us a bit in general about second party data. How can marketers use it? So second party data is what happens when two first party data owners kind of get together in private, you know, like you know, they get a room and what well, pops out nine months later is second party data about how long it takes <laughs> to put that together. Uh, it's, it's when two companies share their own first party data, uh, you, know, you know, kind of exchanging and, and it's done in a way uh, kind of in the dark, as it were, so you can't see the other parties actual customer list. You can only see yours, but then you you. You, you you hash is the technical term. You take the ID, say the email ID, and then you run it through an algorithm that generates something that cannot be is not the email ID and cannot be read back to it, but always gives the same result. So if I put in my copy of this email address and somebody else puts in their copy of the same email address, it comes up with the same code, the same hash. So that you can say, oh, we both have the same person on file. So now we can combine all the information about those people so we can build a more rich profile because we, what, what, what I know and what my partner knows go together into that more rich profile. Then we can do things like we can have promotions to our joint customers or I can do a promotion to your customers and you can do a promotion to my customers, but still without actually sharing the information because I go and I, I say to you, my partner, hey, take all your customers who are not my customers and send them a special offer from me. Okay, so, so you're sending it to your customers so you don't have the privacy issues and you don't have to actually share, you know, expose their data to someone outside, but yet you can still do the promotion. So that's a lot of what second party data is about, is that kind of sharing, private sharing, basically. Uh, so the, the, the announcement that we're just referring to is setting up that capability. It takes a trusted third party, typically, 
to take the data from both sides and do all the work. So again, there's no danger of leakage of your information to someone else. That's what LiveRamp is doing, is, is providing that sort of a safe haven or that, that, that trusted uh, third party to do that. And it's a big business. A lot of the traditional agencies like the Merkels and the Axioms of the world, of course, LiveRamp now uh, is Axiom, uh, have, have had that service for quite some time. It's becoming more and more important. You know, <clears throat> it gets back to our larger trust issues, our our third-party data issue uh, of third-party data becoming harder to get your hands on. So it's, it's one of the places that we're looking to replace to some degree the loss of third-party data is using these second-party data. And, and beyond that, it really, again, because you're dealing with, you know who you're dealing with. It's not like buying third-party data from some random person who you don't know how they gathered it and you're not too sure if you're actually, if they have the like consent and legal right to use it. So this is a much safer thing for a brand to do. They know they're not going to get in trouble. They know who they're dealing with. So we see a lot of growth in, in both so far and, and we see a lot of potential growth in the future for various second party data projects. Enjoyed the show so far? Then subscribe or follow us and never miss an episode. Go to martechadvisor.com slash talking stack for show notes, resources, transcripts, and sponsorship information. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you, and we thank you for your continued support. Now, back to the show. If I'm company and your company B, we decided to do a second party data deal. There has to be some layer in the middle like a live ramp who facilitates that so that you can't see my data and I can't see yours, but we're still matching our data records. Exactly. And again, you do the hashing so you don't really have to expose your data. So even if live ramp wanted to cheat, all they have is this hashed ID, which doesn't do too much. Now, I suppose if I were putting on my um, you know, evil genius hat, well, having the hashed IDs from all these different companies and combining them would allow me to build super profiles, uh, which I would not be allowed to do legally, and I'm sure that no one would ever do such a thing. Uh, but, but even so, the, the risk is of exposure is way less. And, and again, as with the party that you're working with, the, third, the trusted third party is exactly that. It's a trusted third. We're pretty confident that LiveRamp will, will be ethical and, and be competent. Great. Uh, speaking of handling things responsibly, we've seen most companies respond really well to the coronavirus threat, allowing their people to work remotely from home in just a matter of days. Uh, this, of course, speaks to the technology that must already be available that enables people to move to this sort of model rather quickly. But it also speaks about the tech that is now easily available out there and can be deployed very quickly and easily to enable remote work, even for the smaller and relatively less tech-savvy firms, right? And David, you also put together this really handy list of companies offering free versions or quick install versions of their software to, to get companies set up to do this really quickly. The thing about this list is this was just what came in yesterday. <laughs> this is one day's <laughs> worth of announcements, and there were uh, four or six or eight companies who, most of which were services that were video conferencing or collaboration or teleconferencing or virtual workspace, something like that, you know, that, that had always been serving the remote workers or the work-at-home workers, and they were saying, hey, we have the service, you know. Many of them extending some sort of a free offer uh, beyond their normal free offers because a lot of these guys have freemium things anyhow. So people like Zoom, for example, there's always been a free version of Zoom. And, um, but now they've, they've extended in some countries. Uh, some of the limits have, have been taken off so you could use it more without having to pay for it. Um, so, so it's, you know, both a good marketing opportunity for them. But I must say that 
everyone has been pretty um, uh, non-crass or tactful, I think is the word I used, about how they present it, and and you know, and they're not, none of them are you know obviously licking their chops and drooling, but certainly it does open up a lot of opportunity for them and a lot of ways to introduce. So so you know, again, Microsoft, Google, Zoom, Slack, all those guys either had premiums or opened up a, a little broader. Then there are a lot of little companies that at least I was not familiar with. So. Uh, there's somebody called Evolve IP, which does collaboration and workspaces, and they had a free offer. Uh, there's another one called Starleaf, which again was a business continuity and video conferencing, and, and they were doing a free version, um, which I think, again, they already have, but now they're promoting it a little more and getting more attention. Uh, video, which obviously video conferencing, again, a free license. Um, uh, this other one called uh, OneClick, which uh, was more of a streaming application, so remote access to applications. Again, that's a big part of what's going on here. They were doing that. Odo, Odo is another one that was doing the remote access. So, you know, a lot of um, companies, again, whose services are entirely relevant now, particularly if a lot of people are working at home. Absolutely. This can be a real eye-opener for many businesses too, right? I mean, being forced to work with a distributed workforce has definite benefits, I mean, both in terms of cost and operational cost facilities, etc. It'll be interesting to see if there's any permanent work culture changes as an outcome of this uh, forced model that's been thrust upon us. And then, of course, other industries getting disrupted, you know. Uh, events, for example. Will we see more virtual event experiences, do you think? Being able to have a... Uh, an online event where you get the informal interactions because that's the real reason you go to a lot of these events is for the networking and the hanging out and all that. And, you know, there is technology to allow you to do that sort of informal interaction Re remotely. It's obviously not exactly the same, but a lot of the business benefits are there. And, and so we, we, I think that technology exists, but it hasn't really been used. And I think this may force companies uh, event companies in particular to adopt that and and as you say they once they do it uh, they may use it much more wildly I won't say they'll never go back because I think live events will always be interesting and, and have opportunities uh, that you know online events don't have but uh, the, the balance will will very likely shift. So we will see far more experiential virtual events moving forward. I'm sure, like gamified events, 3D experiences, avatars, personas, you know, doing everything you can do at a physical event, but except you're doing it virtually. If you remember Second Life, you know, back, was that 10 years ago, 15 years ago? That's, That's kind right. Of the th that was kind of the thing, and it's like I keep waiting to see if there's going to be a Second Life for Second Life. But there, <laughs> we, ha we have seen some... Uh, you know, 3D virtual reality things, doing exactly what you're just talking about. Uh, and, and again, very cutting edge at the moment, but could quickly become more mainstream. Yeah, so there's the good and the bad. I mean, there's more democratization because global audiences can now attend industry events uh, without having to foot travel bills or writing that letter convincing their bosses. They, also, these events could possibly be more fun, you know, more gamified, more engaging virtual experiences, but also bad possibly because that means live events will become that much more exclusive and possibly even more expensive uh, as if that was even possible. But also then I'm thinking maybe the food industry, like 3D printing your burger and pizza. That's been <laughs> There you go. I hadn't thought of that. Well, 
wherever there's opportunity for the good, uh, I guess there's also opportunity for the bad. So there's, you know, always handy to know that there's a lot of hackers out there using the COVID-19 topic to trick people into opening phishing emails, viruses, and all sorts of fraudsters. Well, the ironies, of course, of emails about virus themselves carrying viruses, uh, which isn't as amusing as it was uh, two weeks ago because it's a little more real now. But that and, and of course, there was an item, you know, where, where YouTube had just opened up and said, oh, we can monetize uh, videos that talk about coronavirus. Originally, they said they weren't going to do that. They have a policy that when they're natural disasters and stuff, they don't do that, mostly because advertisers don't, for brand safety purposes, want to be associated appearing in content that's highly negative, uh, but, but there's so much going on legitimately to say about the, the coronavirus that, and, and one suspects there's so much money to be made. Oh, well, on our part, I guess, stay, stay, uh, stay safe, stay vigilant. Uh, you know, it's time to be responsible workers and employees as much as it is time to be responsible citizens. Um, I wish all of you the best. And David, thanks. Till we meet next week with a special guest, and I hope you all tune in then. Enjoyed the Talking Stack? Show us some love by subscribing or reviewing us on SoundCloud, iTunes, as well as sharing this episode on social. Find more episodes on martechadvisor.com slash talkingstack. Be sure to join us next time, and thanks for listening.